What about you, Helen? We haven't heard from you in a while. Is there um, anything you'd like to t talk about with the group? Yes. I would like to talk about Madeline Ashton. If we were the first wives club, which ones would we be? Can I be Goldie? I get to be Beth. I knew it was gonna end up with Dan fucking Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me gently with the chainsaw. When a movie is so bad, it's good. Thanks, I bought it at Versace. With quotes that launched a thousand memes. I keep your legs together, this isn't Jamaica. Maybe it's so bad, it's... Gay? And when a tired little Latin boy puts on a dress, it's simply a boy in a dress. Jules is here. Hiya. Hi. Hello. I'm also here. Hurrah. Hey. Jules, you're a super fan. I am a super fan. This is my all-time favourite movie. And what are you wearing? Currently sporting a t-shirt with Madeline Ernest and Helen um, on it that I designed for my company, Binge Designs. Log on to www.bingedesigns.com. Look at that for a plug. Mm -hmm. This podcast is brought to you by... <laughs> by Binge Designs. And now a word from our sponsor. Squatter potty. What about you? Love the film or hate the film before we talk about it? I am undecided as to whether I love it because I have a lot of issues with it and re-watching it recently, I realised why it's always been in one of those categories where it's a film that I appreciate rather than one that I love. Right, let's reacquaint ourselves with the trailer. Don't you know that it's worth every treasure on earth to be young at heart? Some people will go to any length to stay young forever. Is that someone? It's Madeline Ashton. Oh, she was a big star in the 60s. I thought she was dead. Oh, madam, you look younger every day. Thank you, Rose. But Madeline Ashton and her old friend, Helen Sharp. I've lost men to her before. Mad Hell. Are about to go <laughs> too far. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Bottoms up. No warning. Now a warning? Siempre viva! Live forever! Ernest, I'm in the morgue. They think I'm dead. You are. But you're not. Are you telling me it doesn't hurt when I do <laughs> this? It doesn't hurt. She's dead! She's dead, Ernest. Now he's dead. He's dead? Ernest is dead? Everybody's dead! You pushed me down the stairs. I'm so sweaty. I don't think it's sweat, honey. I think you're defrosting. Universal Pictures presents Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, it's a miracle, and Goldie Hawn. Look at me, I'm soaking wet. Death becomes her. I just have to make a telephone call.
I love the little um, like bitter juice. Well, before we talk about anything else, can we please point out that Jules just lip synced <laughs> the entire trailer word for word? I've seen it a lot. So if you ever want a performance of Songbird, I'm I'm all over it. So here's the thing, because we might as well start at the beginning. Yeah. Why not? It opens with one of those faux Broadway shows, and the thing that it reminded me of more than anything was Otto von Titzling. Yeah. From, from Beaches. Yeah. It's that Hollywood showing a Broadway show that they've had to invent so they can start the story yeah. on Broadway. And I was trying to think whether there were any other movies that had one of those sort of deliberately awful Broadway but, musicals. But my thing with that moment at the beginning of the film is, I don't think it's dreadful. I kind of want to see the rest of the show. I don't understand why people are leaving. So. No. Not only that, but Meryl Streep flawlessly delivers that choreography. Mm-hmm. Flawlessly. Even when it does the disco it breakdown goes, to yeah. establish that it's 1978. Perfect. Yeah. What more do you... Like, I would love to see little version. Because it felt like... Because I was listening to it, and the reason I love Broadway musicals is they're sort of timeless. Mm. But that disco breakdown always jarred with me until I actually sat and watched the whole of Dreamgirls. And when they do One Night Only, and it starts as a ballad, and then it has that horrible disco version where um, not Effie Dina where Dina does her version of it and it's really soulless and thin and insipid but it's got a cracking disco beat and it felt like that's what they were doing a pastiche of there which I kind of appreciate in the context but your point about why people are leaving but why are they leaving? because that's probably because the story calls for it and that that is one of my problems I think with some of the tonality of the film is I can't be clear on whether she's supposed to be a good actress or a terrible actress because she's still Meryl Streep and when we see the clip of her um, comped into the Michael Caine movie she's clearly being terrible she's Joan Crawfording her arse off but she's still successful enough that she must have been good at something did you just turn Joan Crawford into Into a verb verb. I've verbed Joan (laughs) well actually I would say that Joan Crawford is probably the closest reference to Madeline through the whole film because that whole opening scene with Madam you look more beautiful than ever that that was straight that that, she might as well have called her mum Masita. It yeah. was straight out of Mommy is, Dearest. Is she Joan, Joan Crawfording her, or is she Faye Dunaway in her? Ass? I think oh, she's. I think she's Faye, she's Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawfording her, yeah. because it was before Jessica well, Lang yeah. had re-Joan Crawforded Joe Crawford in a new Joan Crawford way. We're getting meta very early. Aren't very, we? very, very early. early. Right. While the trailer is fresh in our minds, quite a lot of scenes in it that aren't in the film, and quite a lot of terrible-looking scenes, like obvious why they were cut. But also bits like I was saying before we started um, the podcast is that I would kill to see these deleted scenes. Like the bit with her being pulled out of the freezer and then being... Defrosting, defrosting. But that that feels tonally within the the wheelhouse of the film. And as, as you said, Gareth, that you can't, you can't put your finger on what the tone of the film is. No. And I will completely give you that because it's bonkers. And so, so I'll give you another example of a scene. So I said we'll start at the beginning. Here I am jumping to sort of the end of Act 2. There is, but there is no Act 2. There's a... No, but there's a first act which basically covers 14 years of here's a thing, here's a story point, here's a story point, here's a story point. Then act two is basically one evening, yeah. and act three is a high japes escapade on the roof of a building. It's structurally, it's all over the place. But the scene where Goldie Horn breaks into Madeline's grounds, she, is, she, this, is this the Madeline? 
need to talk to no, Madeline. It's after that. It's after Madeline's already dead and has gone to the morgue. She breaks into yeah, the ground. Yeah, and she sprays her. But she does eye. this. I mean, I love Goldie Hawn, and I think she's an incredible physical comedian. But she does this really overplayed performance, and all it reminds me of is Hatchet Face from Cry Baby. <laughs> and that's what it, part of the tonal issue I have is like they're being directed by different directors. Mm. Robert Zemeckis, I don't think he's a great woman's director. I think he works well with men. I don't think he works well with women. And I feel like with two big personalities like Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep, I think he was, I get the feeling he sort of let them do what they wanted to do with the parts. And Goldie interprets it very differently to Meryl. Yeah. Yeah, I think that Goldie Hawn is one of those actresses though that kind of always plays things the exact same way. It's always that kind of over the top comedy. But But that's what I love about her in this film is that I don't think this is like any other Goldie Hawn film that she's ever been. The film isn't, but she is. Yeah. So she's still playing it on that slightly kooky, turned up to 11. I'm not playing it now. And what Meryl Streep does that I think is the reason everybody generally loves Meryl Streep mm-hmm. is she makes everything look fucking effortless. Yeah. She's just not even trying. Her line delivery, her timing, everything, she just makes it look like not hard work. And Goldie Hawn is out there sort of spritzing for a life, like trying to mm. land a laugh. Like the action is, well, you've got to walk around the driveway and you're dressed all in black so no one will see you. And she does this weird sort of Spider-Man mime across the driveway yeah. that doesn't make any sense so, if you're in a film that's got some reality in it. So Meryl Streep, said in an interview in the late 90s that when they filmed this she insisted that they would film one scene that was in some way grounded in reality before they started filming any of the crazy out there scenes so so that she could get herself in the headspace of I'm an actress I'm acting this is not ridiculous yeah. so I think they knew when they were filming that they were they were onto something a little bit out there yeah, yeah. Can, can you imagine pitching this script because I would love to know like I've uh, I've read the, the shooting script essentially which yes. includes all the, the side plot points that aren't included in the film whatever I would love to read the first draft of this script that was pitched to Touchstone mm. and Disney way back when because I bet you it was completely different so it was written originally to be a B-movie and they hadn't actually thought they would get a budget anywhere close to, I think it was 55 million. Mm. And it was meant to be a bit like a modern day Valley of the Dolls. And then the script in its current state got passed to Touchstone. Touchstone said, make it bigger. And then and I we think, have Death Becomes Her. And I think part yeah, of my on. problem is, and funnily enough, we were just talking about the, you know, the Beetlejuice style music in the trailer. That music is the theme music for um, Tales from the Crypt by Danny Elfman. Oh, yeah. And... Robert Zemeckis was one of the executive producers who made Tales from the Crypt. He directed the second episode, which was all through the house about the killer Santa Claus, which starred his wife, who plays one of the party guests at at Helen's book lunch. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she she had a successful career playing sort of minor roles in big movies. She was the psychologist in the Lethal Weapon movies Mm -hmm. that Mel Gibson loved to torment. And... The film, to me, feels like it would work really well as a Tales from the Crypt episode because it's grim and grisly and it's got a biting sense of humour all the way through it, but it doesn't have a lot of story. No. And stretched out to 105 minutes or whatever the running time is, it's kind of like that whole midsection, which all takes place in one evening, feels like a cross between a Hitchcock film about people just trying to murder each other and some sort of weird drawing room play with three characters 
characters mm. having this hysterical reaction to unforeseen circumstances. It's all very farcical, and it's just bookended with a load of setup and then a weird, a weird hijinks ending. Yeah, and I think when you watch when you watch that trailer back, the trailer doesn't actually tell you what the film's about. It goes, "Here are two women." They're obsessed with eternal life, but not. And then, you know, Goldie Horn ends up with a hole in her stomach and... Meryl Streep's head's on backwards. Yeah, exactly. And, like, can you imagine being sent the, the rough cut of the movie that's obviously still being edited because there's loads of deleted scenes in the trailer and going, make a make a trailer that sums up what this film is. Mm. Can you imagine that poor trailer cutter? He'd just be like, <laughs> I don't know how. Yeah. Because I, I don't know what this, this Which is, is why so much of it was, we've got a shitload of fledgling CGI work here. Yeah. Jurassic Park is still a year away yeah. let's fill the screen with these cool effects which at the time were breathtaking mm. and now are really so now, unconvincing so now the problem with it now is that we have HD so I rewatched it this week in HD but the last time I had watched it why are you Mer- Meryl Streep's um, prosthetic jowls yeah. are really really oh, they're a different <laughs> colour to her face <laughs> and I feel really bad being mean about the effects because um, at the time they were Alec Gillis incredible. and Tom Woodruff were the effects guys on this and they did the effects for Tremors and if this is your favourite movie Tremors is mine oh, I love it. I love so it. I won't say a bad word mm. against them HD just it ruins everything especially the scene after Meryl's head gets twisted round and she's trying to get like, sit down and it's like it's like bobbing around like it was they used Microsoft Paint to put yeah. it together but when you watch it on VHS or if you watch any of the clips on YouTube that are in like do we need to explain VHS to some of our younger listeners they're not listening oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah, death becomes her what the fuck is that yeah it's not our audience one, gay men of a certain age my one thing with death becomes her is I know I'm going out on a date with someone who too young for me if I say to them oh and Death Becomes they ask me what's your favourite film I go Death Becomes Her and they go hmm Mm. and I go you know Goldie Horn who get out is that yours because mine is it never no one anyone young enough to not remember Spice Girls being number one in the charts yeah but you can lie about that you can you can always tell that everyone's heard of the Spice Girls but maybe not everyone has heard of Death Becomes Her did you even understand the title Death Becomes Her when when it first came out no no because six seven I just it took me the lot I was like how am I even supposed to say it is it like Death Becomes Her does she become Death and it was only when I got older and I I realised it was trying to say it actually suits her and I, I, I think that kind of even that statement death becomes her mm. it's a fairly flowery sophisticated way of saying something to get a sort of pun in the title yeah and I imagine it passed a lot of people by because they would read it as death becomes her it's she becomes dead yeah and, which and is I, sort of how they only way they could sell the film and I think that's a problem for it is on the one hand it's quite a sophisticated proposition it doesn't have a conventional structure mm-hmm. it doesn't tell a conventional story it has two lead characters, actually three lead characters, mm-hmm. who are all completely objectionable. You don't root. No, well, I go. You go as, into- a, as a gay man, I do. Well, but I go into it, and I'm like, I don't know who I want to triumph at the end of it. All of them. Apart from Ernest. And yet Ernest is the one who gets the happy ending. Yeah, but they get the best ending of any film. They, they get they get a really, ever. really good ending. <laughs> do you remember where you parked the car? Yeah. Is one of my favourite lines do you th- of all time. Do you think that in the, you know, sort of shattered redhead and sort of brittle, tall, thin blonde, that there was just a glimmer of inspiration for Ab Fab? In those two, given that this came out 
What year did Apa come out? I think it was probably the same year. I think it was yeah, 92. 92. Yeah, same year. Yeah, I just wonder whether there was a look... I don't know. That just suddenly... Was that something that... I don't know. Like I was just picturing green. their two heads upside down yeah. outside the church. So I don't consider this film to be one of the films that are so bad they're good. I just consider it to be so fucking great. That oh, it's, it's an amazing it's film. Awesome. But it was made on a $55 million budget. It only made $58 million domestically. Which means it lost money. Which means it lost money when you take into account advertising. Why do you think audiences didn't pick up on it, but gay people did? Um, I think because gay people are much better. They're not much better. God, that's... No, we are. We are. We are. We are. It's fine. I didn't say that. I'm caveating that. There's a huge asterisk that's saying Gareth does not endorse everything said in this podcast. (laughs) I think that we are generally drawn towards stronger or more problematic diva characters. We enjoy movies like that. We enjoy showgirls. We enjoy Mommy Dearest. We enjoy stuff like that. We enjoy women being terrible to To other people and to each other. And I think general multiplex dwelling audiences go to see a comedy with two women where they'll start out not liking each other and they'll end up as friends or it'll be a romantic drama with a happy conclusion where one of them ends up with the guy you know the um, This Means War that awful thing with Tom Hardy and Chris Pine and Reese Witherspoon if there's two men fighting over a woman or two women fighting over a man My Best Friend's Wedding another example there might be a bit of bitterness along the way but they kind of want a tidy resolution this film refuses to play along any any of those lines mm. and I think we like that because actually what we want to see is smart people being pithy and horrible to one another and this film is full of pithy lines which mm. I was going to ask you you've read the, I've never read the screenplay for this although I do love David Kep who wrote yeah. it um, is that how you pronounce his name Kep yes and the other one was what Martin Donovan yes it's a great screenplay but I wonder how funny it is if you just read the lines, not imagining how they're delivered. And that's like, yeah. like Goldie Horn sells the ass off that line. I'm soaking wet. It's mm. hilarious because of how she delivers mm. it. The now a warning is all on Meryl. Yeah, she takes a line that's pretty basic and does something amazing with it. And I suppose that's one of my issues with it as a comedy is if the writing isn't funny, just to to mm. me a great comedy, you should be to just read the script flat and be rolling around and laughing and I, I'm not sure that this is but you've read it I don't know I have read, but the problem is obviously I've read it post and you're film, hearing so I'm the... hearing all those performances and you know to I'm not I'm not going to tear the film apart but there are so many bits that you could tear apart in where I think the you know the comedy that kind of probably reads more on the script is like one of the prime moments is um, when Madeline goes to the emergency room and you've got um, the doctor there. Sidney Pollock yeah, who's Sydney amazing, Pollock. amazing in that. In he's scene. so good in that he's like second only to his performance as um, uh, Dustin Hoffman's agent in Tootsie because yeah. he directed Tootsie and I've only seen Tootsie once oh Tootsie oh. isn't well okay coming soon on this <laughs> podcast Tootsie <laughs> where we educate Derek yay <laughs> But, you know, there's that moment of, where are all the doctors? Yeah. And then you, you look, and in the background of the scene is Sidney Pollock having a heart attack. And yeah. He's, he's dead, and that's a clever... It's quite clever writing in the fact that that actually gets them out of the situation. And you know what I noticed last time when I watched it on Monday that I'd never noticed before, and I've seen this film a few times, there are, there are some really broad comedy moments yeah. as well. Like when they arrive at the hospital, and I never, ever noticed this, there's valet parking at the hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's L'Hopital Beverly Hills. It's the idea that there's some sort of 
prestigious version of a hospital for rich people. And I, I just never got that because it felt like the actual comedy jokes mm. were thrown away. Yeah. And, and the it, non-jokes were turned into comedy highlights by some really excellent performances. But, but I think that's what it is. I think when you've got actresses of that calibre, they can make anything funny. Like Mel Street in Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia is... Awful. It's not a great film, but... And I blame this film for Mamma Mia existing, <laughs> because it's the first time we knew that she had pipes. Yeah, exactly. But you watch something like Mamma Mia, and she, like her, Judy Walters, Christine Berinsky, they make that film watchable. Because they're, no, their moments I'd give comedy. you two out of three there. I live for Julie Walters, but she ruins oh. an already wretched film for oh, me. No, I, Julie Walters falling into the water with the boat bit always makes me laugh. I don't know what it is. There's something, it's like a great comedy fall. But like, you take someone like Meryl Streep and Goldie Horn and you put them in this film. So even, I remember as a kid watching it, and then, you know when you would go back and you rewind the video yes. just to watch that bit again because it was so funny? Yeah. The bits that get me are the, the end with the falling down the stairs and that wonderful smash and the yeah. duet to remove part of the car. And it's also, after she's been to see Dakota, the guy that she's shagging, mm-hmm. um, and she's driving along, she's upset, she's crying, it's raining, and she catches herself in the mirror and just says this most incredible scream. scream and grinds to a halt. Like in the middle of a freeway in LA, when yeah. you're like, you'd be dead. But like that moment, I just thought was so hysterical mm. as a kid, and it still makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. And on more than one occasion recently, I will mm-hmm. go back and rewatch. Can we just talk very quickly about the three bow hunks? Oh, Tom, Tom Dick, Dick and Tom Harry. Dick and Harry. <laughs> yeah, although she says them in the wrong order, and I'm yeah. like, what Dick, the, Tom, Harry. What's the like, point no. of doing it in the wrong order? Why is that a thing? She's and just, also, she's European. She's why is one of them Fabio? Right, before we go back into this, can we please give a special shout out to the person that gave us feedback that they could hear us pouring wine in the last episode? <laughs> can we please cheat and cheers to this person? Yay. Yes, do we, do we know their name? Uh, yes, it was my partner, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> His feedback was, if you're going to pour wine, be a little more discreet about it. Nah. No, absolutely not. Always more wine. So this film was um, completely ravaged by critics. Really? Really badly. Uh, it did not go down well at all. But What's wrong with them? Yeah, the, the, and this is what I don't understand, is that when I watch this film, I'm just filled with fucking glee and wonder mm. and just can't bear but like keep my eyes on it. So why, why, why? I think it's because there are no likeable protagonists. So it's three main characters who are all awful. You know, you've got two women fighting over a man, neither of whom actually want the man. They just want to one-up each other. So you've got a tug of love where there's no love. So it feels a bit pointless. There was such a circus around this film Mm. that at no point did the studio actually trust how good the film was. So all the publicity and everything was... We've got Goldie Horn, who at this point is at the peak of her career. Mm -hmm. You know, she's probably... You know, she's the Cameron Diaz of... Mm -hmm of that period and not only is she in this film but she's also fat mm-hmm. and they put her in this brilliant fat suit I haven't, yes, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen it in HD but it holds up funnily enough okay. the, the fat suit is one of the less awful bits of makeup effects right Meryl's jowls are terrible and everything on Bruce Willis's face is an abomination but <laughs> but the fat suit actually isn't bad yeah but fake ass is terrible. I love that moment but, it, but it's really it doesn't look like a 
big fat bum. It, it doesn't, but then that's sort of the joy of it because it goes with that wonderful sound effect that sounds like a chair farting. Yes. It's like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> as she, you know, as she bends over, no one it's, makes... quite, it, it, it's an arse that makes a noise in the same yes. way that in Scream, the knife makes like a <laughs> slashing across metal noise just when someone holds it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's those little details in this film that I just adore like... so can we talk for a moment about Bruce Willis okay so one thing to just to put in front of this I didn't realise it was Bruce Willis no, did I, I thought it was the and... principal from Supreme of the Teenage Witch yeah, until I was like 15 and I was suddenly like hang on wait a minute that's Bruce fucking Willis from Die Hard. So why do you... So I know Bruce Willis wasn't originally cast. It was another famous actor. Who was it? Who? I can't we'll remember. We'd, ha- we'd have to look it up on IMDb. But there was another actor who was originally cast. It wasn't supposed to be Bruce Willis. Yeah, but why would you cast Bruce Willis in a role other than stunt casting to go Bruce Willis as you've never seen him before? That's what it is. They're all as you've never seen them before. That's, the, that's what I'm saying about the circus of the film. Yeah. Not so much. I mean, Meryl Streep made She-Devil the year before. Yeah, so she yeah. dipped so her toe in comedy. Yeah. I always forget that she's in that. Yeah. I love She-Devil. I love She-Devil. Gareth is gazing blankly out of the window at this point. Have you not seen, seen She-Devil? She-Devil? I've Reservoir. seen it once. Oh, I know. I did not. Bar, here's a gross mole. Now Rosanbar is ugly. I don't think it's the mole. <laughs> uh, can we talk about the special effects for a second? Because Absolutely. the practical effects in this were probably the best I've ever seen mm. in any film. But that was probably the the peak of practical effects because after the the early mid 90s everything started to go CGI so which, which bits are you considering the practical tits. effects the tits which yeah. were literally her assistant yes. lifting them from behind the and the um, the is... hand being pushed back by Sidney Pollock is <laughs> clearly an animatronic hand yeah. but it's done quite believably although weirdly I can do that with my fingers ah. I just did something gross with my fingers but it looks like what they do with her hand where it goes yeah. back too far does this hurt? no what you're telling me this doesn't hurt <laughs> I felt like they were improvising that dialogue yeah. a little bit because they were talking and they weren't saying a whole lot <laughs> there's a couple of things so the scene when Meryl's head is on backwards that was done two ways one of the ways was with an animatronic Mel mm. Mel, Mel Meryl Mel. Um, and also with a bit of CGI until you start seeing the CGI head bop up and down like it's got a, a mind of its own it works. The hole in the stomach with Goldie Hawn, that was part practical effect, part CGI. Mm. Well, I think they just put a green screen on her midsection, didn't they? They did, yeah. but they had to build it up. So they had to, like, basically have the cutout. They built up her jumper so it had some dimension. A prosthetic of a wound. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. which is why when you look at it now, that scene, when she before she saw it, she looks really thin and really skinny. Mm. After she's been shot, she looks like she's got a she's little got bit a of a pot belly. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's one really awkward scene where she sits down on the handle of oh, her, and it kind of goes and it's the wrong angle and, and it they, suddenly goes through her and they had so, to retouch it because yeah. it was at the wrong angle comp it in and it's, yeah. it's well, bit, it looks wonky it's a bit clumsy whereas actually the scene where Meryl throws, throws it, it like a javelin genius is great 
and it just prongs into the back of the couch. That was great. Also, the scene when um, Goldie Hawn, Helen Sharp, gets out of the, the pond after she's uh, been shot. It's all that water cascade. When, yeah, that is geniusly That's done. That's clearly a pres- uh, uh, an yeah, animatronic. So it's actually both. It starts with her, and it's like a literal split-second cut from real Goldie to Mom. animatronic Goldie. Yeah. So I didn't realise this, and I'm jumping back a little bit to something that Jules said earlier, but um, the original ending was actually completely cut. Mm. Yes. Completely different film. So there is a whole subplot in Death Becomes So that never made it into the final film that is in the trailer. So you see Tracy Ullman um, in the trailer, and there is this whole other story where Bruce Willis meets her in a bar after he's just done all the retouching on... Um, Mad in Hell. She sort of sympathizes with him, whatever. And at the end of the film, he runs off with her, but pretends that he's dead so that the girls will stop looking for him. And that's basically the end of the film. And they tested it and it just didn't quite work. Yeah. And so, because it sort of, it didn't end with, with Madeline and Helen. You just sort of thought, oh, well, they're just going to fall apart over time. As they tested it and they made them go and then reshoot a new ending where we then rejoined... Um, Ernest all those years later where he had then died and they'd obviously been around like when off the top of your head do you know what year it is or it's meant to be it's like nine it's another it's like another 21 20 years later yes it is the 20 I think it's the 2020s or something we're probably not too far away from it yeah that's what I was thinking it's like mm. Mm. We need to find out what that is, because that's one of those dates that needs to get celebrated on yeah, social media. it really does. And I sort of want to look it up afterwards. And let's face it, we've been dining out for ages on Robert Zemeckis' 2015 connection. Yeah. Pe- people were lining up to celebrate the 2015 day of, this is the day that Michael J. Fox arrives in the future. Yeah. They were doing it in 2013, 2014. Yeah. I think it still ran over into 2016, <laughs> even though we'd already passed it. <laughs> Her, there's another film that happens in in no in iRobot, but the date was like I think it's now. It was like 2018, but that film was only made in like 2009. Derek's having a conversation. Imagine he's talking to other people who actually liked iRobot. Yeah. Oh. Really? Really? Once. Uh, I own it in Blu-ray. Why? Because it's great. It's not. It's so good. It's really not. Do you know what else I love that everybody hates? Um, AI. No, I love the first Steven act. Spielberg's worst movie. The first, ever. the first act. Oh. I adore. The rest of it is just reprehensible oh, nonsense. Blocked it out. It's a horrible piece of cinema. Anyway, back to Death Becomes Her. So, <laughs> I asked earlier about why you would cast Bruce Willis mm. in this role. I just, I think my problem with Bruce Willis in this is not so much what he does with the role, because there's not a lot to do with the role. They sort of play alcoholism for laughs, which in our enlightened yeah, millennial genius, era. Genius in 1992. Yeah, it was, you could we laugh at... with a Bloody Mary. In the same way that you could laugh at the kind of lazy homophobia of Ian Ogilvy's salon owner. It's like where he plays that sort of effete I, I, cam- I love that character. So do I. I don't think it's lazy homophobia. I, I genuinely just think that is what salon owners in Los Angeles are like because I've met them. Yeah. I, I think, think he... I think I always put him and Frank... From um, from Beverly Hills Cop. No, Father the Bride. 
Oh, Frank, the Frank, oh, the yeah. wedding planner. Was in. I think he, I, he's in Beverly Hills Cop, right? I'm not making that up. Yeah, yeah. But I think no, Ma- that's Martin Short is the wedding planner. Yeah, Martin, yeah, Martin Short. You're is thinking Frank. of Bronson Pinchot, who plays yeah. the gallery owner in Beverly Hills Cop, oh, who yeah. went on to be in Perfect Strangers, where he played Balky. Oh, yeah. Well, oh my God, I'm doing it again. Yeah, <laughs> put the bread away. I, but I think I remember watching like Father the Bride again. Is a very similar. Like time period, I think Father Bride probably was ninety-two. Yeah. I think I think that's a good point. Mm. I think we're at the we're at the pinnacle. We're at the nexus point of high concept comedies, where the, the concept point. was bigger than the funny. Yeah. We're at the point where movies never got any better after that period of time. Like I I rate the from like ninety-two to ninety-six. Mm the best movies that oh see that's interesting because my mine is literally a decade earlier and that's probably our age difference yeah Uh, so I think we spoke about this before we started recording themes in this film for a PG yes include murder revenge suicide excessive plastic surgery jealousy a love triangle spousal abuse alcoholism erectile dysfunction yes and not necessarily a theme, but the nudity in this film. Yeah. There is, like, for, you watch it now and you go, this is a PG-rated film. I think they maybe swear maybe once or twice. It's like a shit or... I can't even remember where they are. There's a spattering like of shits. Yeah, which was great in the... Those 90s films got away with. Isabella Rossellini spends the entire film naked. There is a lot of I'm, side boob yeah. in this film. So yeah. much side boob. The thing with this film was that it was marketed as a family movie. Like I was, it was 93, so I was seven when this came out. And I remember being on a football pitch force. No. Yeah, on, a, on a Saturday morning. Going, yeah, you've got to go and play football with the Cubs or Scouts or whatever you're doing at age. And I remember talking to talking to one of the other boys who was probably, you know, either a bit gay or a bit fat who'd been put in defence because we didn't actually want to play. Could have been both. Some of us started out like that. Oh, I was I was definitely both. And I remember saying to him, like, oh my God, probably in that time, I'm going to see this new film that's called Death Becomes Her and I'm, my mum and dad is good. It's like Saturday night where they're going to take me to see this film. Um, I'm so excited about it. And I remember the game this blank look of him going hmm? I think I went Goldie Horn <laughs> but like as a, even as a seven year old I'd seen like the, you know they had, used to have those making of programs that you know were 10-15 minutes or whatever and they were showcasing the effects there was something about it and I don't think I ever saw the trailer in the cinema or whatever that just made me desperate to see it mm-hmm. and I went to see it in the cinema thought it was amazing and then you know a year later it came out on video and I remember getting it for Christmas and it was that was the only Christmas present that I remember from that year because I finally got Death Becomes on video I meant that I could watch it again and again which is and again exactly what I did when I eventually got it on VHS I would watch it on a Saturday take it out rewind it because you yeah. had to fucking rewind things <laughs> yeah. and then watch it again I drove myself to the cinema to see it because uh, it came out the year I learned to drive. I'm a virgin that can't drive. <laughs> yeah, I know, I've said as much. My Goldie Horn film is Overboard. Overboard is Goldie Horn taking a pretty good script and making it amazing. Genius. Every line in that movie is amazing. It was released in the same years as Beauty and the Beast, Muppet Christmas Carol, and then Death Becomes Her. Like, to be a seven-year-old going... And I saw, and I saw all, all three. And I, and I saw all three. Like, that's so weird. As a general point, why do gay men love a film with a feuding woman in it? Because watching this back, it really reminds me of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Mm. And that's probably the first feuding woman film gay men latched onto and has survived mm. decades. I was going to say, I think when women 
go into battle, like in a movie like this, they have to rely on their wit. It, it doesn't go physical the way it would with two men. So it ends up being a battle of wits and it's pithy dialogue and it's smart. And it, I mean, this film is just rife with passive aggression. Even the scenes where they're being nice to each other, the opening moment in the Broadway theatre, the way they shorten each other's names, you mad get mad hell. hell. I'm, I'm mad as hell. It's yeah, just brilliant. It's, brilliant. it's so good. And it, and it basically captures all of that. And they're so horrible to each other and dripping with niceness at the same time. And I think we all recognise what that is. And that's not behaviour that's exclusive to women, but it's behaviour that we as gay men love to see in women when it's delivered with a knowing wink or some self-awareness. And that's what's wonderful about Death Becomes Her is that they've never liked each other. Like, at no point do you ever think, God, why? Like, you always think throughout the whole film, why are you friends? Yes. And, like, and at the end when they break it down. Friends? But there was that scene just after they have the, the sword fight with shovels when they start to realise that there was a little bit of a misunderstanding between the, the negative feelings. Yeah, because they were jealous. One thought she was cheap. trash. Uh, cheap, that's right. Cheap. And you were jealous of me. And and I, I kind of like that they, they have get a to that they conclusion. Have a they, they need to find it at that moment. They need to find a common ground between one another. And I suppose the payoff being as unpleasant as it is, is that they found that resolution. They've decided they can work together. They just never really liked each other. They've never really liked it. It's that... And they continue to not like each other, yeah. but they can work with that. Well, there are, like, there are two moments in it when, you know, they after they realise about Ernest and, like, we'll get him to do one last touch-up and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, you know, you paint my ass, you paint, and I'll paint yours. Oh, you know, who'd have thought? You and I painting each other asses for all eternity. Yeah. It's like, there's that, and then there's the bit at the end when they're at the funeral, and they look, that, that, it's such a great comedy moment where they lift the veil, and they look like absolute shit. shit. Mm-hmm. And she just goes, oh, you're all runny. <laughs> <laughs> This was the peak of Goldie Hawn. Mm. This was like, because that year, what else was she in? She was well, Goldie Hawn had, a, let's be fair, Goldie Hawn had a 10 year peak, but her peak was Private Benjamin, Wildcats, House Sitter, House Sitter, um, a Bird on a Wire, uh, Overboard. We talked about Overboard. We've missed one. Have we? Overboard, House Sitter, Bird on a Wire. But why didn't Goldie's career last like Meryl's did? Because, I mean. Because she was a comedic actress. And, and she also removed herself from the light. You know, she chose. She was like, I've done my thing. And I'm, I think she wanted to do more philanthropic stuff, which is what she spent mm. some time doing. But she made a shit ton of money. Because she was like, ex- like a silent executive producer on lots of her films. Like Meryl and Goldie are executive producers on Death Becomes Her. Oh, I didn't know that. But they're uncredited. So they had like shit ton of back end and all that stuff. So, you know, she's made her money. And she, I don't think she's ever really wanted to be... She didn't need to work. That's the no. thing. I think she's one of those... You know, I always used to wonder about those people who kept getting eight, ten million dollars a movie. It's like, <laughs> when do you go, actually, I'm going to make a film because I really That's want to awesome make this idea. and I'm interested in it rather than I can get a massive paycheck? Yeah. How much money is enough? And I think for someone like Goldie Hawn, she probably thought, yeah, I've had a good run. I'm, I'm okay. I'm maybe not getting the office I want. I'm not getting the great scripts I want. You might like the Out of Towners. She made it. It didn't get a great reception. She probably thought, now's probably a good time for me yeah, to just retreat into the background. Oh. Her daughter, Kate Hudson, was having a golden patch around that mm-hmm. time. She probably thought, I don't need to be competing with my own daughter. Yeah. Retire. Not retire, but step back. Yeah. And then um, Snatched came along with Amy Schumer. And she, she got talked into it. I used to be a film producer. I'm not anymore. Um, I was 
producing a or co-producing a gay film called I Do which we did someone else eventually managed to get it made and we had a wonderful cameo for Goldie Horn. I met with Goldie Horn um, to talk about it and she really really wants to do it it wasn't about the money it wasn't about anything else the only reason we didn't get her was because of scheduling mm-hmm. and I remember talking to her and saying so why haven't you you know I'm going to be a fanboy here for a second why haven't you made a film in 10 years because I miss you and she just went not interested oh the film that we missed was the first wives club yes yes how the fuck did we miss there we that? go the best goldie horn film yeah. oh my god if we were the first wives club which ones would we be can i be goldie i get to be bet i knew it was gonna end up with dan <laughs> fucking king <laughs> you can be stockard channing i i do love to be stockard channing Martin Donovan and David, how do you pronounce his surname? Kep. Kep. Were interviewed for Vanity Fair. And they were asked outright, why do they think gay men love this film? Really? Why it became a cult piece of queer cinema? Mm. And they couldn't give a definitive answer. They kind of went with a fluffy response around like, oh, fabulous. Fabulous. You know, strong women, blah, 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 Sweetie brass, sparkles, brass, brass. Mm. Broadway, jazz so, hands. And all of that. So based on what we've spoken about this evening, why do we think it's become a cult, a gay cult classic? I think it's because it's, it's so quotable. And I think that's a big it, thing. It with, is quotable. With films that, are, that, you know, resonate within the gay community. And they're these brilliant, absurd lines. Like you think of some, like Mommy Dearest. Bring me the axe. Yeah. I'm not mad at you. I'm, I'm mad, mad at the dirt. dirt. Exactly. Like, they're iconic moments. And then you, you go into Death Becomes Her and you have, I want to talk about Madeline Ashton. I'm sorry. Could you just not breathe? Yeah. That's my favourite line. Oh, it's such a great, amazing And line. the fact that he does, and she has and a goes, moment where she just looks around and she's like, actually, this is better. Yeah. And then and I'd love that line because it's the antithesis of his character is that he will literally do anything, including not breathing and holding his breath until they get to the other end mm. but it's like they're just Death Becomes Her is to me one of the most quotable movies and I find myself quoting it on a weekly basis okay so bad it's good or so gay it's great so gay it's great I, so gay it's great I think five gay stars I'm gonna with give some it unicorn blood so great it's gay Oh, really? I have problems with it. I, I do there's, think... There are so many problems with it. I think it, it's a movie written by two men, directed by a man, with two strong women leads that really doesn't seem to like women. It maybe has a really dim view of women. that's why it's really gay. Even the fact that the final moment when we're at Ernest's funeral, they say he founded an institute dedicated to the study of women. The fact that when she's talking about her, she says, she's a woman for God's sake. A woman from Newark. Newark. <laughs> There's a really unpleasant seam of women are not to be trusted. They don't like each other. And I think probably if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I I wouldn't have had such a vehement response. I wouldn't have minded so much. I just think in the last couple of years, I've become much more attuned to this kind of insidious sexism. You just become much more aware of it and how easy it is to slip into criticism of women. And I think this film was just at that point where it was easy to do and nobody battered an eyelid. But are we just too PC now? Yes, absolutely. I don't. I don't think this film is an abomination against women. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think, think it's, it's an. Abo- I don't think it's an abomination. It's I just, just think there's a. It's real, and there's there's a raw aspect to it in that Madeline Ashton's like unapologetic about the fact that she wants to to remain young, and she's mm. kind of vicious with it. But if you look at like modern day pop culture, when you've got Towie, the only way is Essex. All of these really shit reality TV mm. programs with all of these girls that are completely plastic. Plum. Yeah, they're all completely plastic, and it's 
it's it's that. I mean, the, generationally, it hasn't changed. No, no, and I, I get that. I I just think it, if you're offering up a commentary, you have to have a little more insight into it rather than just to point the finger and go, "Aren't these people no, all terrible?" I don't th- no, I don't think they point the finger at all. You know, she's just had like a chemical face peel, mm. and she's like, "Oh, you know, I want to do this again." She's like, "But Madeline, but Madeline." It's practically but, six months ago. It was yeah, two weeks. It was ago. two weeks ago. <laughs> well, actually, while you've got that in your mind, can we talk about how Goldie Hawn's character in the First Wives Club is essentially? Madeline Ashton. Yes, completely. In fact, in that conversation, yeah, at, least, at, least, at least Elliot is, is basically, yeah. yeah, fill them up. Fill them up. I feel like we're foreshadowing a future podcast. We yeah. need to do. Actually, the First Wife Club. Should I write that do. down? Yes, you really should, because I want to be on it. I had fun. This was good. This was really good. This I, was great. I, I, I love guesting on this. I sort of feel like I've developed a new found love for this film. I, Yay! I, I never That's didn't true. like it. I just didn't know exactly how I felt about it. And you've convinced me. Excellent. I love it. Right, Jules, where can people find you online? You can find me either at, at Binge Designs um, or you can also find me at Dear Podcast UK on Twitter. Oh, is that your new podcast? That is my new podcast. We talk about agony art columns. It's very funny. You should listen. I'm at Gadimelo. It's I'm, really easy. It's really not easy. It's not You're that going easy. to need to spell it again. Oh, at G-D-I-M-E-L-O-W. Or you could just follow us all at, at So Bad It's Gay. Yeah. Bye. Is, bye. bye. Thanks for listening. Fuck me gently with the chainsaw. When a movie is so bad, it's good. Thanks, I bought it at Versace. With quotes that launched a thousand memes. Keep your legs together. This isn't Jamaica. Maybe it's so bad, it's gay. And when a tired little Latin boy puts on a dress, it's simply a boy in a dress. Let's get the hell out of here. Honestly, believe that this teacher, this benefactor. This man had, in his own way, learned the secret of eternal life. And it's here, among us, in the hearts of his friends, and the secret of eternal youth, right here, in the lives of his children and his grandchildren. And it is my opinion that our beloved Ernest is one man who will indeed live forever. Blah, 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 blah.